nobleman's stamp with such care that the tampering must have been impossible to see. Had their master not been a much wiser man, the two couriers would surely have survived. For it wasn't the seals that would undo Rodrigo and Donato. It was the heavy black wax in which those seals had been pressed. When they arrived at San Lorenzo, the messengers were met by a mason who knew what was in the wax, an extract from a poisonous herb called deadly nightshade, which, when applied to the eyes, dilates the pupils. Today the compound is used medicinally, but in those days it was used by Italian women as a cosmetic drug because large pupils were considered a mark of beauty. It was this practice that earned the plant its other name, Beautiful Woman or Belladonna. As Rodrigo and Donato melted and remelted each seal then, the smoke from the burning wax took hold. Upon their arrival at San Lorenzo, the mason brought them to a candelabra near the altar. When their pupils failed to contract, he knew what they had done. And though the men struggled to recognize him through their unfocused eyes, the mason did as he'd been told. He took his sword and beheaded them. It was a test of trust, his master said, and the messengers had failed. What became of Rodrigo and Donato, my father learned in a document he discovered just before he died. The mason covered the men's bodies and drew them from the church, sopping up their blood with cheesecloth and rags. The heads he placed in two saddlebags on either side of his mount. The bodies he slung across the backs of Donato's and Rodrigo's own horses and hitched them in tow to his own. He found the letter in Donato's pocket and burned it, for it was a fake, and there was no true recipient. Then, before leaving, he crouched in penitence before the church, horrified by the sin he had committed for his master. In his eyes, the six columns of San Lorenzo formed black teeth from the openings in between, and the simple mason admitted that he trembled when he saw this, for as a child at the widow's knees, he had learned how the poet Dante had seen hell, and how the punishment of the greatest sinners was to be chewed forever in the jaws of L'Omperador del Doloroso Regno. Maybe old St. Lawrence stared up from his grave finally, seeing the blood on the poor man's hands and forgave him. Or maybe there was no forgiveness to be had, and like the saints and martyrs of today, Lawrence was inscrutably silent. Later that night, the mason followed his master's orders and brought the bodies of Rodrigo and Donato to a butcher. The fate of their carcasses, it's probably best not to guess. Their parts were tossed into the streets and collected by dust carts, I hope, or eaten by dogs before they could find themselves baked into a pie. But the butcher found another use for the two men's heads. A baker in town, a man with a touch of the devil in him, bought the heads from the butcher and placed them in his own oven as he left for the night. It was a custom in those days for the local widows to borrow the baker's ovens after dark, while the day's embers were still hot, and when the women arrived they shrieked and nearly fainted at the sight of what they found. At first it seems a low fate to be used as fodder for a trick on old crones. But I imagine a much greater fame came to Donato and Rodrigo in the way they died than ever would have come to them in life. For the widows in every civilization are the keepers of its memory. And the ones who found the heads in the baker's oven surely never forgot. 
Even when the baker confessed to what he'd done, the widows must have kept telling the story of their discovery to Rome's children, who, for a generation, remembered the tale of the miraculous heads as vividly as they did the monster coughed up by the Tiber floods. And though the story of the two messengers would eventually be forgotten, a single thing remains beyond doubt. The mason did his job well. Whatever his master's secret was, it never left San Lorenzo. The morning after Donato and Rodrigo were murdered, as the dust cart men heaped filth and innards into their barrows, little notice was taken that two men were dead. The slow progress of beauty into decay into beauty continued, and like the serpent's teeth that Cadmus sowed, the blood of evil watered Roman earth and brought about rebirth. Five hundred years would elapse before anyone discovered the truth. When those five centuries passed and death found a new pair of messengers, I was finishing my last year of college at Princeton. Chapter One Strange thing, time. It weighs most on those who have it least. Nothing is lighter than being young with the world on your shoulders. It gives you a feeling of possibility so seductive, you know there must be something more important you could be doing than studying for exams. I can see myself now, the night it all began. I'm lying back on the old red sofa in our dorm room, wrestling with Pavlov and his dogs in my introductory psychology book, wondering why I never fulfilled my science requirement as a freshman like everyone else. A pair of letters sits on the coffee table in front of me, each containing a vision of what I could be doing next year. The night of Good Friday has fallen, cold April in Princeton, New Jersey, and with only a month of college left, I'm no different from anyone else in the class of 1999. I'm having trouble getting my mind off the future. Charlie is sitting on the floor by the cube refrigerator, playing with the magnetic Shakespeare someone left in our room last week. The Fitzgerald novel he's supposed to be reading for his final paper in English 151W is spread open on the floor with its spine broken, like a butterfly somebody stepped on, and he's forming and reforming sentences from magnets with Shakespearean words on them. If you ask him why he's not reading Fitzgerald, he'll grunt and say, There's no point. As far as he's concerned, literature is just an educated man's shell game, three-card Monty for the college crowd. What you see is never what you get. For a science-minded guy like Charlie, that's the height of perversity. He's headed for medical school in the fall, but the rest of us are still hearing about the C-plus he found on his English midterm in March. Gil glances over at us and smiles. He's been pretending to study for an economics exam, but breakfast at Tiffany's is on, and Gil has a thing for old films, especially ones with Audrey Hepburn. His advice to Charlie was simple. If you don't want to read the book, then rent the movie. They'll never know. He's probably right, but Charlie sees something dishonest in that. And anyway, it would prevent him from complaining about what a scam literature is. So instead of Daisy Buchanan, we're watching Holly Golightly, yet again. I reach down and rearrange some of Charlie's words until the sentence at the top of the fridge says, to fail or not to fail, that is the question. 
Charlie raises his head to give me a disapproving look. Sitting down, he's almost as tall as I am on the couch. When we stand next to each other, he looks like Othello on steroids, a 215-pound black man who scrapes the ceilings at six and a half feet. By contrast, I'm five foot seven in shoes. Charlie likes to call us Red Giant and White Dwarf, because a red giant is a star that's unusually large and bright, while a white dwarf is small and dense and dull. I have to remind him that Napoleon was only five foot two, even if Paul is right that when you convert French feet to English, the emperor was actually taller. Paul is the only one of us who isn't in the room now. He disappeared earlier in the day and hasn't been seen since. Things between him and me have been rocky for the past month, and with all the academic pressure on him lately, he's chosen to do most of his studying at Ivy, the eating club where he and Gil are members. It's his senior thesis he's working on, the paper all Princeton undergrads must write in order to graduate. Charlie, Gill, and I would be doing the same ourselves, except that our departmental deadlines have already come and gone. Charlie identified a new protein interaction in certain neuronal signaling pathways. Gill managed something on the ramifications of a flat tax. I pasted mine together at the last minute between applications and interviews, and I'm sure Frankenstein's scholarship will forever be the same. The senior thesis is an institution that almost everyone despises. Alumni talk about their theses wistfully, as if they can't remember anything more enjoyable than writing 100-page research papers while taking classes.